Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. Uh, my name is Mike Fada. I have John Forker with me from uh, Once Upon a Farm and from previously from Annie's. Um, it's Q&A time. Uh, if you have a question or you think John or I can help you out, uh, put up your hand and come up on stage. Uh, when it's your turn, you can introduce yourself and your business and, and ask your question. I'd ask you to keep it to uh, under 60 seconds so uh, we can help uh, as many founders as possible tonight. Hey, Jesse. How are Hi, you? Hi, Good. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. Likewise. Likewise. Great, uh, great talk this evening. That's, most, that's mostly John. Uh, he's got <laughs> no. lots of lots of wisdom coming out. So I, I kind of figured there'd be uh, there'd be gems galore, and uh, and that's what it's been so far. But you want to you want to go ahead, Jesse? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, thank you again for uh, taking the time this evening. Um, the question I had: I recently last year exited my first food startup, uh, and I did that one solo. Uh, definitely, you know, went through the trials and tribulations of that. Uh, this time around, for my next venture. Um, I think I have a pretty good idea on my hands, but how would you, or what would you suggest finding uh, your yin to your yang as far as a co-founder? Where would you look? Where would you go? Someone that's obviously compatible in a relationship standpoint, working relationship standpoint, but, you know, kind of complementary to your skills um, in essence. Yeah, I think there's, um, see, this has been a little bit impacted by COVID, um, but there's so many great entrepreneur groups and where, where part of the country you're located in. I'm down in Orlando, Florida. So that's kind of a little bit of a challenge. I'm kind of on a, an Island, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's maybe a little bit less of this down there, but, but um, yeah, I would just network and um, you know, getting involved in, in, you know, platforms like this and, um, you know, being on LinkedIn and just connecting with lots of different people, I think be clear about what are, what do you think the things that you really bring to the business are the skills, whether they're functional or strategy or whatever. And then what is the gap you want to fill and look for that? Um, uh, this is a great networking industry. So, you know, ask a person who can ask a person who can ask a person. It's pretty amazing what can happen when you get two or three degrees separated um, just exposing your idea, um, to the people that you trust and asking their opinion for, you know, inter- interesting, uh, people or entrepreneurs who are also looking to start something. There's not a lot of original thought in that, what I just said, but I think that's the best way to go about it. Um, I've never seen anybody like formally have a formal product to go find a co-founder, you know, um, I think that's the informal way is probably the best way because you have the best chance of really making sure that you've got third party validation of that person and you have the time to spend with them to figure it out and make sure you've got complementary skills and you can really get along. Because a high stress environment, as you know, from your first, you know, venture, like there will be days where you, you, you need to make sure that you've got your wing person. So, right. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much for that response. Yeah, those are uh, good, good insights, John. I, I, that's why this is the best industry in the world, right? It's people, uh, it's a community, it's a lifestyle for for a number of the people involved in the industry. And if they can't help you out, then they're likely going to be able to uh, point you in the direction of uh, of someone that can. So, hopefully, that's helpful for you, Jesse. Oh yeah, tons. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah.
Hey, Tessa. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. Hey, Mike. Thanks for hosting. And hi, John. Nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for um, joining and thank you for sharing, I mean, what you said earlier, your honesty, like about how it really is and it's difficult and I love how, you know, you're in it just like us. Um, And so I appreciate you being here and sharing that with us. Um, My question is, you had mentioned, I created a product over 10 years ago, basically in a silo, kind of like what you talked about without getting all the data. And I'm curious when you mention like now, what would be your top like three tactical, two or three tactical tips to use, you know, all the platforms that we have now to gather that data from your community, like you mentioned, like how would we actually do that? Um, What would be the best way in your opinion? Thank you again. Yeah. So do you have an existing product and brand that you're selling online right now? Or this is this before that? Yeah, no, I have an existing product and looking at like potential line extensions, like how, how would you go about that? Yeah. So um, the first thing I'd do is I'd curate a list of your best customers. So, um, you know, people buying you online right now, go find the hundred who are buying the most and the most frequently. And I would develop a survey to reach out with them to figure out, engage with them, to ask them questions about, who they are, why they buy, um, what are the challenges, you know, how does your product fit in to their world? Um, And then, um, you know, depending on what you learn from that, I would follow up again and um, maybe create a sub panel of them that you send product to with a questionnaire. The, to me, to me, the, the, you know, you can do statistically significant, um, you know, sampling, you know, with, with, you know, in theory, I think like 35 people, but in reality, like a hundred to 200 good respondents that you can really understand who they are, where they come from and, and, and look at that. And um, so I would, I would do a lot of that. I would do, um, you know, phone interviews with, with some of them too. So you really can ask a lot of questions and follow up, you know, that's a, a cheap inexpensive thing that a founder could do versus like bringing in and doing formal uh, focus groups and spending a lot of money on it, although you can do that too, and it's helpful if, at the right stage. I would go talk to, um, you know, people that have experience in the categories you're in and really make sure I was understanding what's happening in that category. What are the big trends? What are the, you know, what are the biggest players doing? What's driving the most success at retail? And I'd really try to get smart about that. So I knew what landscape I was going to potentially be launching these into and in what place in the store. Um, Those are probably the two biggest buckets, but I I think the consumer connection and empathy, as I've mentioned a few times is to me, the single most important thing Um, and really making sure that you're, you're developing that idea with that insight and, and iteratively, right? So like, you know, talking to them and then developing something and then come back and going, Hey, here's what we have. What do you think? You know, um, that, that to me is the, this, the scrappiest, most true to what will probably get you to the best product that's, you know, viable to start with. And then, and then just be open to continuing to get that kind of feedback. As I mentioned earlier, your product is never going to be done. It can always be better and continually looking for ways to do that is the way I would approach it. Thank you. You bet. Hey, John, 
Have you guys, uh, have you used any of the tools? I know there's some like market research um, apps that uh, that you can kind of get, get some of that quantitative and qualitative research a little easier or lower cost. Have you guys done any of that? Uh? Yeah, we haven't done any of the like app, app based stuff that's out there, but we've used a lot of like contractors, consultants that have done a lot of work and then help us formulate um, surveys or just help us do stuff really scrappy. So We've done we've done a lot of different things, but I can't I can't think of a specific app that we've used to do that to help facilitate that. Okay, yeah, thanks, Tessa. Hopefully that's uh, helpful for you. Yeah, it was. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Hey, Jeremy, welcome. How are you? Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. Uh, th- thanks for hosting, John. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Tessa, yep. great question. And John, great answer. I wrote a full page of notes on that one. I am a co-founder of a, an organic beef jerky company. And, you know, I personally love our original packaging design, but I, I know it needs improvement. So my question to you is, do you have any suggestions on the packaging redesign process and more of like uh, the how of how to go about doing it? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can give you some general stuff here. I'm I'm gonna be the first to admit, like I'm I've worked with some amazing people who are really good at this, including my current CMO, Katie. Um, the but but the basic principles are the first one is, you know, understand your consumer. You know what are, what are the insights around your consumer that should inform what the packaging should look like and how it should be speaking to them. Things like you know what are the attributes they're most concerned about. You know like in our in our product that that work showed that one of the things they're most concerned about by far is no added sugar. So it's okay. So you you register that and you go okay in in whatever package design we have that's going to be an important element. And then another thing that resonated in our research is that kids are pretty important in the decision that parents are making about our product. They're more important than they are in some other categories. Um, so we need to make sure that we incorporated elements into our packaging that are, that kids would really interesting so that they would be dragging their parents by the shirt, the case to pull us out. Um, so once you get those, those basic consumer insights, um, you, you really, you want to pull it together into kind of a brief, which, and there, you can, you can search online you can find, you know, new packaging brief, just search that you'll probably find a million different examples of what a packaging brief looks like it's basically a document that allows you to organize that thinking about what you want this package to do what the brand stands for what's most important to your consumers and then you can take that brief to you know a range of different packaging designers who who do this work and it can be you know freelancers who just do do have done a lot of it and they work for themselves or it can be you know firms that have a bunch of people doing it there's a lot of different ways to do it um, and then and then get proposals from at least two or three different firms who or, or or contractors who have experience they can show you what they've done before you can look at the the ideas they're proposing or the process that they're thinking about and and how is that going to marry up to the brief and at the end of the day how confident are you they're going to be able to translate you know um, what, what you want the packaging to do into something that's super creative and that's going to pop and stand out in the category. You know, it's, it's a combination of art and science and um, great packaging design is like, 
you kind of know it when you see it, but it's kind of hard to describe somebody on your own product until you see it. Um, so it's just a journey of iteration with the designer once you've gotten to that place to, to you know, develop a few different looks. And then again, I started with the consumer. I'll come back to the consumer again. It's really important to just to vet those ideas with consumers. And it's really easy to put together a little concept test where you put like, hey, here's three different ways our packaging can look and communicate. And you can, and you can get those out in a survey format. And you can figure out pretty darn quickly how those consumers who you think are your core you're going after react to them and what, which ones they like more and which ones they don't like more. And, um, you know, there's, there, there are people who, um, who will disagree with what I just said there that think you should do everything based upon, you know, the ivory tower and your own insight. But I just think that my experience has been e- even just the simplest consumer surveys can give you such powerful insights about what you should make a product look like. I'll example. Um, some of you may be familiar with the Annie's product uh, called Friends. And Friends was, um, Friends is actually, it's three different uh, uh, like bunny uh, gram uh, flavors all mixed together like Friends. And we had a couple different paths how we wanted the product to look. And they were both really good. And one was like, I'd say a little bit more like, um, you know, colorful, but like a clean, simple background and some imagery. And another one was this like crazy tie dye, like hippie look, <laughs> um, which was very popular in Berkeley where we were. <laughs> and, and we we looked at it and we're like, which one should we do? You know? And we went out to some consumers and got some consumer insights. And basically you could summarize the consumer insights as, the 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 first one I mentioned is the one that Kraft would do, and is the one that you would do, <laughs> because they knew our company ethos and they knew what the brand stood for, and we did that, and it turned into a massive success. So I think we could have had a successful repackaging if we didn't take that last step, but I just think we ended up with a better result, listening to our core customers. That's great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I uh, I took a couple pages of notes on that one, uh, John. So uh, very very good insights, uh, Jeremy. Hopefully that's uh, helpful for you, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I'm, I'm at three pages of notes now. Thanks, well, guys. That's, that's what this is all about. You get the insights, and then uh, and then you go and execute, and look forward to uh, to following the journey with you. Tim, how are you tonight? Welcome. <clears throat> hey, Mike. I'm doing well. Doing well. Thanks for uh, putting us on. Uh, hey John, uh, this this question's um, actually for both of you, but uh, uh, I'll just introduce introduce myself quick here. I'm uh, I'm the founder of a bone broth company here in Canada called Broya, and um, <clears throat> yeah, so I would love to understand a little bit more about uh, kind of just the criteria that you guys look for uh, when deciding to invest in a company. Uh, and I know you both kind of mentioned, you know, you're betting on the horse, like the entrepreneur. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to just understand a little more about, you know, um, yeah, what are the qualities, you know, what are the, uh, and then also a little bit more about maybe the product market fit, like what constitutes product market fit in your mind. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe, and maybe even like an example of an entrepreneur you've invested in and why they're, why you thought they'd be great. Thanks. Sure. Mike, do you want to go first or want me to go first? 
You're the guest, John. You go first. I'll follow okay. up if I, if I got anything. Uh, if, if you don't drop okay. all the all the gems, then maybe I'll add on. But uh, go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, um, I think, as I mentioned before, I think the entrepreneur to me is the most important thing. And in terms of like qualities in an entrepreneur, I look for I look for humility. Um, cause I remember myself when I was 27 and thought I knew everything and didn't shit. <laughs> and, um, so I look for humility and I, I actually like, um, entrepreneurs who have suffered, who have worked hard and failed. Um, especially if they've shown that they've grown from that failure. So, um, that attribute I think is real one that really serves them well, especially, you know, down the road. Um, if my, if my money's in their company and, um, in terms of, um, you know, I obviously care about product and the product is important. I just don't think it's as important as the entrepreneur because a good entrepreneur can figure out how to make all that better. But I do think that um, category selection is a big one. You know, um, you know, lots of times, you know, sometimes you'll like, boy, there's a really amazing product category, but um, or, or product somebody comes with, but then just like, can that ever be big? an example without naming names is somebody came to me once with, um, it was a really creative product. It was kind of a blend of seeds and interesting stuff that you would basically take a piece of fish and like coat it in it and then like grill it. And it was just amazing. It was like incredible, but I realized I just looked at it. I'm like, okay, if I did that and I used it like five times a year, I'd have that can eight years from now, <laughs> is that something that's going to be purchased frequently enough that it'll turn into something that can be a business? And I think sometimes, sometimes you have to think of it through that lens. Like, so like high frequency categories or things that could be a high frequency um, consumption opportunity or, you know, usage opportunity are uh, appealing to me. And then, and then I also like um, products and people who are kind of thinking at the edge of what, not, not what's hot in the sense of like, okay, keto diets are hot right now. I'm going to do a keto like pancake mix. Okay. Like I'm talking about like people are thinking at the edge of the big trends, like, um, like the elevation of frozen as a category. If you've watched that category over the last decade, 10 years ago, people thought frozen was dead. It was a place where there was no growth. There was no consumer interest in it. And then along come, you know, millennials looking for, you know, the, the prefer or like occasionally, you know, or oftentimes don't want to cook and they want something better. And frozen actually gives you this amazing ability to deliver high quality nutrition with very few additives and, um, and let, and little processing. It's kind of an amazing canvas to paint on. So entrepreneurs who recognize that earlier and were like, wow, we can do some really cool stuff here and really shake this category up. That, that, that's it. An interesting one or what's happening in the plant-based space now or what's happening in the fresh perimeter, you know, redeveloping center store categories. I think ideas that are, that kind of directionally are where the wind is blowing, but that could create new subcategories. And that's where the product goes, but it's always secondary to who's going to be the jockey. So. Yeah. Well, you said it well there, John, I, I, um, I Tim, for me, it's, um, you know, passion and, uh, and lifestyle. And, and I think it's important for me because then the entrepreneur has probably a better understanding of the consumer or maybe where the consumer is going. Um, mindfulness there. And I think John kind of touched on that, but you know, the always learning kind of at attitude about themselves and, and about others. Um, 
And um, I found that, uh, you know, um, marketing minded uh, entrepreneurs uh, have have are usually the ones that can create more success, even marketing minded CEOs, uh, just because their their clarity on vision, innovation and communication um, are, are, are just natural uh, competencies. So that's what I uh, that's what I look for. Yeah, those are great builds. I love that. Cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, very insightful and uh, definitely have a ton of follow up questions, but I will not <laughs> have those here. So uh, but thanks. Yeah, yeah you're welcome, you. Tim. Christopher, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me up, Mike. Uh, hello, John. Nice to meet you. Um, I've heard many good things about you. My wife, Aaron Sojourner. I think uh, you guys have communicated a good bit from Demeter. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really curious. I, I noticed Ari and um, I guess Jennifer, um, there's been an investment in biodynamics with Jim Fulmer on the farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've been working... Uh, prior to Aaron leaving Demeter, uh, we were solely focused on bringing in um, biodynamic food and creating a new brand that would start to support the Biodynamic Trade Association in the United mm-hmm. States, which doesn't exist. And Catherine DiMatteo came on as an advisor. And uh, when she transitioned out of that position, uh, she got swooped up pretty quickly by HB Specialty Foods. And um, COVID came along. And so we said, you know what, let's just slow down with releasing any new products right now or launching anything. And um, we're, we're kind of rerouting and still working. Um, she's, you know, working in her, her uh, midnight hours on creating this new product line uh, that's solely focused on biodynamics. It's so unique. You go to Biofoc in Germany. And it's just absolutely huge over there. The Demeter has been, I mean, since 2002, when I first went to Biofoc, it was mind-blowing. And it still is how large it is in that country. And it being one of the platinum standards of regenerative with the least amount of off-farm inputs, we're trying to create the same thing I did with superfoods back in 2000, 2001. We're now doing this with biodynamics, but it's a little bit different because superfoods, it really didn't resonate with me how it took off as it was better than all these other foods like kale and broccoli and so forth. But biodynamics, there's this subtle uh, ethos to the farming, to the whole nature of it. And as well, um, we've got about 116 suppliers. So I was just curious, like in this day and age, if you were entering the marketplace and you were either trying to align with specific brands with certain supply chains to help market this and or just to develop a product line that was solely focused around biodynamic, what do you feel are some of the biggest hurdles? And um, what do you feel are some of the potential vantage points that should be considered? Yeah, um, it's interesting having the conversation. My team at Annie's years ago, and we're like, we were watching what was happening over in Europe too. And we're like, hey, let's do the first... um, you know, biodynamic certified mac and cheese here in the U.S. What does that supply chain look like? And we map it all out. Of course, it gave us a headache because of the, the, the complexity and challenges of doing it, just given the um, we were dealing with at the time. And so I think the biggest, what a lot of these things, the biggest challenge is just the consumer education piece. You know, even after all these years um, of messaging by thousands and thousands of companies around USDA certified organic, there's still tons of consumer confusion about what that means, right? And what is it and what isn't it and and all that and how does it play against regenerative? Like there's just a lot of confusion. So like to me, 
um, if you were going to really try to, 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 to get that going. And I do think that it will come here in the U S and I do think there'll be a few brands that kind of like lead the charge and create a, um, a discussion around it that can start like building an epicenter of energy that'll grow. I think it feels to me like it's also one of those things though, that'll really require a retailer or two or an online platform to really get behind it, to really start differentiating and messaging around it. Um, so th those would be the things that I would be focused on if I was trying to develop a brand there would be, um, you know, something compelling that I could talk about. I could do a lot of, um, online marketing, I could work to, you know, develop an omni-channel business model with it and um, maybe get, you know, some of the leading edge co-ops or, you know, even some of the bigger chains, some of the regions to really get behind it and start talking about it and educating um, along the lines of why it's so much better for the environment, why it's aligned and even better than what most people think of as regenerative and um, we decided to do it on um, Jen's farm in Locust Grove. It's a very, very small farm. And we found Jim um, Fulmer, who's uh, just an amazing talent and who had a lot of experience in this area, and just said, hey, let's develop this really tiny thing. Really is almost an experiment to see if we can do it. And we're in the process of doing that now. But it, it's, it's very hard to get um, a supply chain of the ingredients required for that unless you import them. Um, big enough to make it work. It depends, you know, it's obviously product category specific, but, but I think consumer awareness and education is going to be the biggest thing. And if you pulled, you know, Demeter right now, it would probably less than 1% of consumers would even have any idea what that is. Um, and like, you know, maybe 40 or 50% would understand what organic is. They wouldn't understand what it really is. Um, but they would understand, they would be aware of it. So that's probably the biggest challenge you face there. But I think you're right. It's coming. I do think that that will come because it's just better. And it's, um, and, and it's already shown that it can scale to something really big, um, in a different society. And there's no reason that a lot of the consumer drivers behind, um, health and wellness here in the U S are, just as strong they're just at a different different place in time and um i think it's probably coming thanks john hopefully that was helpful for you christopher absolutely i appreciate it it's nice to share space with you guys yeah thank you christina welcome how are you yeah thank you so much first off um i'm really excited my first job was in brand management at general mills um mm. so i'm super uh, excited to hear from somebody speak so highly of the company it was a, a great a great opportunity and um, was so thrilled to see Annie's join the company. So I'm a founder uh, and have spent most of my career in CPG and know that you have also spent a lot of time in the industry, have an MBA, and there are just a lot of expectations, I think, that go along with those types of things. And whether those expectations be internal or external, there's still something that as a founder you deal with. How do you kind of manage all of the pressure that you feel both internally and externally to make this venture successful? Wow. Um, well, my answer to that question has, has evolved a lot over time. Um, and here's, here's, here's the basic short, short version of it. When I was in my 20s and 
I mentioned earlier that I thought I knew everything. I don't think I was arrogant, but I was definitely a know-it-all and, um, and didn't have the experience to really know what I didn't know, which is a big part of it. Um, but I also had a work style where I worked constantly and really strong work ethic I grew up with. I didn't necessarily always work. And there's a big difference between those two things. And the other thing I did is that I, I worried about everything. I worried about everything all the time. And one day about, you know, about 10 years later, 15 years down the road, I remember just having this epiphany and going, I worry a lot and I worry about things. And about 95% of the time, the things I worry about never happen. And I asked myself, am I worrying about stuff too much that I shouldn't be worrying about? <laughs> like, and if I redirected all of that worry into, you know, better, more useful, um, you know, personal energy or focus on my own health and wellness or on doing better you know, in certain aspects of my job and my leadership or whatever, would I be better? And I ha I've been a leader since then. And for, um, if you can call it that, of being able to ride the highs and lows without getting too high or too low. Like that's a really important thing as an entrepreneur is to things will go badly at certain times and unexpectedly and to not be dragged down to the point where you can't deal with it is really important. And being able to like step back and go, okay, take a breath. Now let's think about what, what do we do to make the best of the situation? And likewise, when things, there are times when things are just going so great, you can't even believe it and ground yourself in, in the knowledge that it's to be that way. What are the things you need to do to make sure that it, you know, that you can continue to see the business perform. So those are, that's my personal philosophy is be more thoughtful of my time, work smarter and just stay balanced and take the time to take a walk around the block or to visit with a friend or do whatever it is that takes you to the place where you can be balanced because you're going to need the energy um, for the journey. And it's a, it's a journey. It's a long journey. It's not a sprint, although you can sprint in there at times. So that's how I, that's how I deal with it. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll just add, Add Christina a little, little different path for me, but uh, you know, I, was, I dropped out of school at thirteen, and so it was about survival, and uh, and survival to me was figuring it out, and so that that works really well for as as an entrepreneur, I think, uh, um, a strong work ethic and 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 figuring it out. But I did realize as as we became more of a real business and uh, and and successful, um, I was still surviving and thought that you know every every. Every decision was uh, was was a, a make or break decision, which it which it wasn't, and and had me worrying too much uh, too. And I, I, uh, I, I, you know, being mindful of worrying is really praying for things you don't want um, instead of uh, being optimistic and and know that there's highs and lows. And uh, I like the story about the farmer and the horse. Uh, if you don't know that one, it's a good little one to read. And uh, um, because every you know a good leader just maintains calm, cool, and collective because you. You don't know if that decision, even if it, even if something went bad, um, that ultimately it wasn't the right thing to happen because it's going to lead to other good things. So hopefully that helps. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for coming up. Russell, how are you today? Welcome. Wonderful. Thanks, Mike. Um, 
once again, amazing guest, amazing room. You're, you're knocking that out of the park. I really appreciate the, uh, just the level of detail you get into with your guest. And John, I appreciate how much you've shared. And of course, when you talk about packaging, my ears perk up. Um, my name is Russell. I'm a packaging scientist, mostly focusing on the material innovation side and sustainability side in my day job. But I research and write about all things packaging. So my question is, of course, about packaging. Um, I discovered your brand when your company was, I think, co-presenting at Global Pouch Forum a few years ago. Um, and your brand has transformed quite a bit recently. I, I read about it in, I think, like Packaging Magazine or something. Complete refresh, brand, packaging, website, everything. And, and it looks awesome, by the way. Um, one quick question, and then maybe a, a, a bigger one. Did I, I noticed that your closure changed. Did you go from something stock to something custom um, in this change? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, uh, I think we were custom before. Um, so I'm not you sure. How it ends. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm not, I think, I think we were custom and we are custom, um, is the bottom line. Okay. And then the, the bigger question is how did you and your team know that it was time for a complete refresh? It was really driven by the consumer insights. We, we, the, the, the most significant consumer insight we got, and it took us a while to get it. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm a, the biggest, my, I'm my own biggest Monday morning quarterback. So I'm always second guessing how long it took us to do things, but it takes a while. It's a journey. Like we, we figured out over a period of time that the vast majority of our consumption for our products was kids ages one through eight, not quote unquote babies. Um, and once we, once we understood that and saw that, um, it, it triggered a whole bunch of other questions that we asked ourselves about how our communication was working, you know, was it time to evolve the branding and, um, Katie Marson, who's my CM, CMO and she's amazing and she's very creative and she had insights that she brought to it as well. And so we went through a process and worked with a really great, um, group of people that helped us land where we are and it's been phenomenally successful and like I said before I don't think it'll be done um, because it never it's never done it just needs to evolve as the brand evolves and and grows but it was a very fun process and um, it's the first time I've really gone through like a what I would call like a full like kind of brand evolution like across all touch points of communication website all that stuff i've done plenty of stuff like especially at annie's where we would develop new lines or clean up branding across the whole thing but very maybe once or twice over a 15-year period did we do something where we were really touching everything comprehensively and that's what we did here and it makes it a it makes it pretty exciting because like one day it just shows up and it's recognizable and it's still the brand they love but they love it more and they you know sometimes they can verbalize why but oftentimes they just verbalize why by hopefully buying more and, and being more of an evangelist for the brand with their friends and stuff. So it's been fun. Okay. Awesome. I appreciate the answer. Hey, Matthew. Uh, uh, good evening. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. Good evening. Thanks, Mike. I really, really appreciate this room and appreciate you letting me come up and ask the question and having John on as a, as a wonderful guest. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take a brief minute and just tell you something that I learned. Like you often talk about dropping out of school. And when I was 
in graduate school, one of my professors commented that um, one year of experience is equal to two years of school. And so whenever I hear you talk about dropping out of school, I think you just have massive amounts of more education and experience than those of us who went to graduate school. And I speak to it too, you know, having, having a shovel in my hands from when I was 14 to 18, I knew I didn't want to have a shovel in my hands, but I also spent a lot of time working with other people. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I agree, but it does uh, come without, you know, I never learned business case in school or how to write a formal letter and stuff. So some of that was a little bit extra challenging when I started a business, but, but uh, thanks. I appreciate it. And go ahead. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, um, John, uh, uh, my company is called New Gem Foods and we basically, we created a, a new product category that didn't exist and we make a replacement for bread and tortilla tortillas and uh, seaweed on sushi made out, of, made out of fruits and vegetables. And so we created the product category with the USDA's Agriculture Research Service. And um, uh, it, it's just very difficult when you create a product category. We, so we say like wrap your sandwich in a tomato and our tomatoes made from tomato, our carrots made from carrot, our mangoes made from mango. We're the only company that does this. And there's new entrants into this product category now. There's the cauliflower egg wraps and the egg wraps and the egg crepes and, and a lot of these other products that are new entrants. And we've been around for a while. And it's just a real struggle to get people to understand what our product is and what it's made from and how to use it. And then to get the buyers to take a risk on us. Uh, yeah. We have traction, but it's slow. And I'm just wondering if you can give me some advice on how to get the buyers to understand that consumers want our products and uh, how to get them to take a risk on us. Um, where are you putting it in the store right now? Curious. So we get bounced around. That's one of our challenges because we created the category. We originally started approaching the dry goods guys, and then they said, well, you're really produce. And then we talked to the produce guys, and they said, well, you're kind of deli bakery. So we've been able to get into the stores mostly through deli. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I feel your pain. It's really – it's when you have an innovative product that doesn't necessarily fit. Like we have products that you know, would be in every baby food aisle in the U.S. if there was refrigeration in those aisles. Um, but we've had to really go tell the story to uh, different buyers in the store that had the refrigerated space, which for our product state we need. Um, so I think um, the approach I would take if I were you at the stage you're at would be, um, you know, as you look across the footprints of distribution that you have, the places where you are, try to really, to the to degree you can, and you can probably figure this out, assess where you're working. You know, lots of times, um, lots of times new product categories start slowly and they, they bubble under the for a while until one brand or one retailer really figures out there's something there and gets behind it. So I would try to figure out where's your best case, where's you, where are you performing the best? Um, develop a story around that. Um, make sure that the buyer that's on that category is understanding the impact bringing to the category. Maybe get some, get a little bit of data, get some analytics, try to show what kind of growth impact you're having in their category, however you define that. Um, and then just start getting them to, to put more support behind it, whether that's giving you additional facings or assortment or maybe giving you access to some promotional or digital events or something that you haven't been able to do before. So you can start driving consumer awareness and trial in store 
I would be um, trying to leverage all those same things online too. Um, and then, and then it's really just building some success stories and then taking that packaging it up and taking it to the other retailers and places where you think you can do the same thing. And, um, and then, you know, in terms of marketing around concepts like this, the, the kind of marketing that I see that works the best around concepts like this is, um, I'd say like PR influencer placement, like, uh, um, partnerships, places where you can actually get, um, content out there that consumers see this, this, you know, sandwich quote unquote being wrapped differently and under, and then understanding the benefit of it so that you can really start getting some people, you know, into the category for the product, the way you're describing the product, it sounds like it could be like a high frequency usage occasion. You know, it could be one of those things that's in the kitchen and your people are making in the family or, or using it every day. Like, that's a really exciting thing. And there's no, there's not a lot of new things like that that are bringing growth to categories across the store. And so if you can figure out how to, how to harness that a little bit, package the story up and sell against the data, you'll, you'll give yourself the best opportunity to break out. Those are the quick thoughts I had. Yeah, and I, I just pile on there, Matthew, a little bit, because I think John's, uh, I think John laid it out right. And I, I'll give you the live example, because, you know, we had that challenge, exact challenge with hemp hearts uh, and hemp hearts sold in the nutrition supplement area, like whole body area of whole foods. Um, but also because it's use, usage on as a topping on salad, we we're in produce uh, and also in cereal and in baking. So four different categories. And, and, uh, and we realized, it, unfortunately, it was a little different depending on the retailer where we are going to sell best. And so we did have to understand the, uh, the unit velocity per week per store in the different categories and how that compared to, uh, to the other competing products and, and package that up with merchandising recommendations for, for, for the retail partner. Um, and then know that we were also targeting secondary displays in those other areas uh, to try to just sell more around the store and so um it does it does put the pressure on to be you know i don't know about a category captain but uh when you're new and and, and launching a new ca- launching a new innovation like that sometimes you have to be and uh, and take that strong leadership role that's really great i, I appreciate it yeah it's not easy and getting all of this advice is is much appreciated and uh yeah thank you so much you're back good luck yeah you're back you're welcome Aaron, welcome. How are you? Howdy, gentlemen. I'm well, thank you. Uh, so, let's see. I, I, I was kind of born into the uh, health and wellness space. Um, my dad was a radio talk show host and sort of a early pioneer of the alternative medicine um, trends. Um, and, and now it's turned, you know, not into a trend, but, um, his, his name was Kerry Nosler. He had a radio show called the wide world of health for over 30 years. And, um, so growing up, I, I was very aware of all the different products and brands. And, uh, I wanted to create, um, a, a natural fruits product that was really, really simple. Um, and kind of to the point. So I created a honey, a private label uh, a honey product called One Kilo of Honey. Um, and it's just uh, 100% organic. It's from Canada. Um, it's iced honey. And, um, you know, we got amazing feedback. Um, we've had a ton of hurdles, um, you know, in the last couple of years. But uh, now we, we finally got a finished product. And 
Um, so we just picked up another investor. Um, and my question is, you know, I, I'm horrible at social media. I mean, it's not my forte. Um, I, I sort of created the brand, the Kilo Company. Um, but I just, I'm not some, somebody for social media. Um, the ideas, yes, but I'm not, not really putting it into play. Um, so my question is, you know, with, with some of the capital that, that we have now with a new investor, should we look at investing in just doing this, you know, guerrilla marketing like I have been doing? I've, I'm very good at sales. Every time I walk out, if I literally have a kilo of honey in my hand, I can sell it to literally somebody walking on the street um, or anybody, you know, friends of mine, they're, they're becoming repeat buyers. And um, so, you know, we've, we've sold probably a few hundred uh, of the product. Um, but should we invest in the street teams and more guerrilla marketing? Um, sh or should we, you know, really invest in, in the social media and hire somebody who's really good at that where we are doing kind of everything at one time. Um, so I want to know really where to focus. Um, and you know, I assume all this should be done before really going to retailers. Well, um, I assume, um, based on, based on what you're saying, like my first, my first thing is, have you developed, um, you know, the website mm -hmm. or do you yeah. have, do you have the ability to sell e-commerce and are you, yep. is, is that, is that your primary focus and that's happening right now, right? Already. Yeah. Yeah. You can go on. I mean, repeat buyers. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It works well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always, I always tell people like, I think starting it online is always the right way to go now. And I believe that in every temperature state, that doesn't matter whether it's frozen or refrigerated. I think that's, that's mm. gotta be the first place to go. And my instincts are at the stage you're at, like it's, it's premature, I think to be investing in a bunch of people. Um, I would, I would, um, you know, in street teams and stuff, you generally only need that if you're going to really saturate marketing an area and like spend a ton on sampling and all that. It's hard in the COVID area to do that anyway. But my instincts are, and co companies this size, especially given that you mentioned that you're not, you don't, you know, social media is not your thing. Hire somebody who's just like right out of college, digitally native. The, the, they speak this language. They're fluent in Instagram and they're fluent in um, TikTok and whatever, whatever. And they can just like bring your, your social to life um, in a way that can really help elevate your DTC business. And then, so the, and generally those positions don't cost a lot, but you get a lot out of that. It's a really high return investment. Mm -hmm. And then, and then depending on where you take it in retail, you might need some kind of support later. But, but, um, the biggest mistake I see companies make, um, at, at this early stage are over investing and in, in a lot of things that they don't have the distribution really to help pay for before, before it's a little bit cart before the horse. So I would focus on building the brand, the social, the content, building a robust DTC business where you have a lot of repeat customers and a lot of mm -hmm. people clamoring for it. And then take that story into the best retailers and make it happen. That's kind of what I think we do. So, thank you for that. That, that really helps. Um, and then when it you know comes to something like honey, right? Obviously, probably one of the oldest products out there. Um, you know, are, are we going to have to rely on the brand itself, or 
you know, should we keep touting the, the health benefits? And because I, I personally, I don't think so that we should, you know, it's healthy. It's good for you. It has all these benefits. Um, a lot of people tell me that, but obviously I grew up in the health and wellness industry. Like I've been hearing that all my life. Um, and you know, honey isn't really sexy. We want to create something sexy and, um, you know, really sell the brand. So is that, is that really what we should focus on is just coming up with a, a unique position, um, and, and brand that is different than everybody else or the well, health benefits? Well, I mean, there's a lot of honey out there. So the thing you should be thinking about is like, what, what makes yours different and what's the story behind it? And how can you tell that story in a way that's going to be meaningful to people that care about certain things, whether it's wellness or whatever, or environmental impact, how, what, however, the, whatever those things are, that's where my mind would be going. Um, and I'd be spending time thinking about that versus, um, you know, and building a brand around that because you don't want to be just another honey with a story that people don't, you know, that they, that doesn't resonate or you won't be able to, position at a premium and do all the things that you need to do to build a real business. So very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. welcome. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. Well, John, um, we're coming to the end. I, I love that you threw in the, uh, the best way to start a business nowadays is, is, uh, is direct to consumer, even no matter what the temperature state. Cause I, there's a certain individual in the audience that even froze in D to C, uh, I wanted them to hear that. So thanks for, uh, Thanks for that. But really, just thank you uh, so much for uh, for the time. I appreciate your time. I think you uh, added a lot of value to the uh, to the audience and, and even myself. I uh, I know when I'm taking notes, uh, um, you know, I, I love learning. And honestly, you got me extra pumped up about our industry and uh, even even the thought about uh, about uh, operating, which uh, I haven't had that thought. I had the anti thought for for the last while. So, um, yeah, really just uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. appreciate that. Um any uh, any last uh, thoughts from you before I have a couple of things for closing, but uh, anything else that you want no, to share? No, yeah, just uh, th- thank you for inviting me into this community, and uh, I love it. And um, if anyone um, wants to connect with me, I've, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Just just, just connect with me there, and um, best of luck, and, and um, let's all support each other and try to make the world a better place. That is awesome. You heard it. Uh, you know, John is on LinkedIn. You can connect with John or I on LinkedIn and happy to, uh, happy to help founders out with, uh, with information or, or sharing. And that's what this industry is all about. Yeah. Again, John, thanks so much. Uh, I, uh, I do appreciate your time and, uh, and thanks for the, uh, thanks for the support. Great. Have, thanks all. Yeah. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the founder to mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fata. That's it for now. See you next time.